0: And so, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 18. And, uh, by the way, I want to thank those of you who prayed for me this week. I I had a, uh, a physical struggle that I'm still kind of dealing with, but uh it kept me from the pulpit on Wednesday night, which is a doesn't happen very often unless I feel that <laughs> I'm not in very good shape physically. So, it happened this weekend, but your prayers have been very strengthening and, and I appreciate appreciate them all uh, acts 18 verses 1 through th- 6 is our text because we're going to the table of communion today we're going to kind of cut the teaching a little short but this is a good good passage for us to be in today Acts chapter 18 verses 1 through 6 as we do every Sunday let's let us if you can please stand and uh, if you're able and uh, but please read with me verses 1 through 6 of acts 18 Chapter 18. Let's read together and let's read aloud. Verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, He stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon us now as we come to your precious word.
1: May you open our
0: hearts and our eyes, our, our minds, our ears, and fill us with your spirit that we may come to a greater understanding of your word today. And where it applies to our hearts, Lord God, may, may it stir us to greater things, to do those things that will honor and bless you on a daily basis. And in our very lives, may we give honor and glory to you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. I chose the, the title for this message, From Athens to Corinth, simply because, in titling it what I wanted to title it, which was From Bad to Worse, it would have given the wrong impression of Paul's ministry. But uh, that particular title would actually fit the thought here that Paul was going from bad to worse in respect to the cities mentioned, the cities of Athens and Corinth. And while Paul was certainly provoked by the idolatry in Athens, which we saw in our text last time, the, the city, for the most part, Athens, was was yet known more for its culture, for its learning, its architecture, for, and, and so on. But Corinth, on the other hand, while it matched Athens in importance due to its commerce and its trade, was also infamous for its Profligacy. Now that's a fancy word. I never like to say things without actually giving you an understanding of what it is. Well, profligacy is about a it's about a two or three dollar word uh, that that means uh, to um, uh, licentiousness. Uh, and that's about a fifty cent word there. So uh, bring it down to decadence, and if uh, we can't get to the, the you know forty five cent word decadence, then we need to come down to wicked and evil, which I think you know. is is pretty understandable here. And primarily in the sexual areas. Sexual immorality. Sexual types of sins. This is what Corinth was known for. To act the Corinthian, which was a phrase of that time, to act the Corinthian, meant that this person was somebody who was free in all of their sexual pleasures and appetites and express them openly. Now that's not a good thing for a city to be known for. But Corinth was known for this. Some modern commentators have labeled Corinth as the Hollywood and the Las Vegas combined of the Roman Empire. And that's another thing that I don't know that anybody would want to be labeled as or any city labeled as that. And you would think, well, you know, if you, if you look at the worst parts of Hollywood and Las Vegas, then that's what you have in Corinth. Corinth was the center for the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, who promoted immorality in the name of religion. As a matter of fact, one commentator cites the significance that it was from Corinth that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. For when one reads his description of Gentile corruption in that Roman letter, one has almost certainly a mirror of what he found in Corinth. So when you read tonight, because this is, by the way, is your homework, Romans chapter 1, verses 24, all the way to the end. When you read this, you're going to see that Paul had a lot uh, before him to write about when it came to the sins of men. Because there in Corinth, he saw it all. Politically, Corinth was a Roman colony and a capital, or the capital of the province of Achaia. And, and so all of this in mind about the city. We come now to Paul, who has gone from Athens, a city that uh, he found himself alone in because uh, T- Timothy and Silas uh, weren't with him at the time. And there he was looking, you know, going to the synagogue, preaching the gospel, going into the marketplace, preaching the gospel, eventually being taken to the Areopagus, where he preached Christ there to the philosophers of, of Athens and had some response, but mostly the response was negative in the sense that a lot of people mocked him, they mocked Jesus and they mocked the resurrection. Paul moves on from Athens, and now he comes on his way here to to Corinth, and we can gain some clear insight into the emotions of the Apostle Paul in coming to Corinth from his very first letter that he writes to the church there. So in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, and I'm going to do this a little bit throughout this study, is get some insights from Paul as he's writing back to the church later on, but it reminds us of what he has gone through in getting there and being there in Corinth. But in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1-5, through Paul writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, and I want you to take note of verse 3. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Take note of that. And then he goes on and says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul acknowledges something here. He acknowledges his weakness, his fear, and much trembling. And some people would think, well, that, you know, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of odd for Paul, Paul being, you know, considered to, to be the great apostle that he was. But as we've spoken in time past, especially when Paul had those run-ins with Peter about the Gentiles and, and their faith in Christ, we said that Paul was a, was a human being, just like we are. Paul was human. He, he, he made mistakes in his life, just as we do. Paul suffered like we suffer at times, in the struggles of life Paul suffered from from uh, uh, physical afflictions like many of us at times suffer from day to day in this life there was nothing that disconnected Paul from us and, and just to, to, to see that his heart is opened up in this honesty should make us not try to be what we're not there are some people today who say you shouldn't confess this or you shouldn't confess that that's a negative confession well I don't know but if I feel sick I'm sick I know God can heal me, but if I'm sick, I'm sick. Why should I lie? You understand? In weakness, in fear, and much trembling, what was Paul doing? That's a negative confession. Or is it? It's expressing his heart here. And his acknowledgement of weakness, fear, and much trembling could have been due to a few factors. Understand, as God's word begins to open up here for us. First of all, he came to Corinth alone. That's enough to kind of cause some weakness, fear, and much trembling. Secondly, the difficulties that he faced in coming to Macedonia, to the area of Thessalonica and Berea, where Paul had problems with the Jews who came and disrupted, you know, the things that Paul was doing in preaching the gospel. So he faced these uh, difficulties uh, with apprehension as to what would happen in Corinth where he was by himself. And thirdly, Corinth had a, tr- a tremendous, and I almost have to think that third is the is is the is the heaviest thought here, and that is that Corinth had held a tremendous reputation for its sexual license, which means great temptation. Great temptation, sounds like today. Sounds like the temptations that are out there fully and uh, for all of us today in this, in this society. Whether it be on billboards or whether it be on the internet or on TV, whatever it might be. Movies, you know, some of us can't even go to movies anymore because, you know, there's nothing good to see. Because everything either, e- either mocks Christ or, 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 or mocks uh, uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian ethics that we believe in and stand upon as Christians. I'll well, we'll see that. That's not going to make me laugh or cry or whatever. Well, i not going to make me cry, but I'm going to make me laugh. The fact of the matter is, we have those temptations all around us. Fact we is, we shouldn't take those temptations. You know. So, but, but Paul's alone, and so the fact that Paul came alone would also account for something else. It accounted for his having baptized some people in that city, a practice that he normally delegated to others. Paul didn't come to baptize; he came to preach the gospel. But it's interesting, and we'll see this next week as well. But it, in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 through 17, Paul talks about having baptized some people in Corinth. And here's the reason why. He didn't know anybody, but anybody that came to Christ, he wanted to baptize them so that he could have fellowship with them. Think about it. He says in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 1, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I have baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. But it it, it brings to mind the fact that in baptizing these people, now he has Christian brothers to fellowship with. He's no longer alone, in other words. So it was there in Corinth, that by the providence and grace of God, Paul met some new friends with very similar talents in one respect. And in verses 2 and 3 of our text in Acts 18, Luke goes on to say, And Paul found a certain Jew. He found a certain Jew named Aquila. By the way, if you're marking anything in your Bible, mark the word found. Because that's very significant here for our study. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And then Luke gives us a parenthetical thought about this coming uh, of Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth. He says, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. Now, although it is not clearly stated here, Aquila and Priscilla were probably Christians at the time of meeting Paul. But it could also be that he led them to the Lord while working together in their tent making business. Now, one thing is for sure. We may not know, you know, whether they were Christians already or whether they became Christians with Paul, but one thing is for sure. God was certainly at work in this relationship. God was at work in this relationship. The very fact that we're sitting here today in fellowship with one another in Christ, many of you may know each other, maybe, maybe you don't know too many people yet, but as you keep coming, you begin to know people, you begin to realize, how did this come about? I would have never in the flesh and in the, you know, in the world ever sat with any of you. Some people might be saying, but God brought us together. It was God who providentially brought us into this relationship together. And and, and what brings us together more than anything is the love of Jesus Christ. But that's God's hand. It's not just something that happens, it's God's working. Paul, when writing to the Romans, uh, in Romans 8, 28, says, "For, uh, For we know that all things work together for good, who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For all things work together for good to those who are in Christ, to those who are God's people, to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. God's working these things together. We need to come to a greater understanding of the providence of God, how God works. And a lot of times God works in, in, in His providence in times that we don't like to think that God's working or maybe we're wondering why is God working in this manner? When we have troubles or trials or, or, or great tragedies in our lives, is God working? Yes. Sometimes the bad part of it is, is is hard for us to accept, but when we look back in retrospect, we say God's hand was there. God's hand was here. God's hand was, was moving this to happen so that we've come into contact with people who love the Lord and, and all of a sudden we have a new relationship that we never would have had before. Or things have happened differently than I ever expected. Why? Because God is at work in the lives of His people. And Paul is not one who just believes or accepts happenstance, who accepts things happen because they just happen. Like some people think the world was created by just things happening. Rather than just believe that it says in in Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke them into existence. But people want to just believe, you know, happenstance. Want to believe chance. Things just happen by chance. No they don't. They happen because God is actively involved in the lives of His people. And think about it. What it took for Paul to come into contact with Priscilla and Aquila. You see, in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. You can go back in history books, you'll see this. The Roman historian Suetonius said of this event, and by the way, he wrote this seven years after the fact, but nonetheless he wrote of this event, he said, as the Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, interesting crestus c-h-r-e-s-t-u-s claudius banished them from rome crestus differs by only one letter from the latin christus or christ and because that because of that writing some 70 years before or i should say 70 years after these events some feel that suetonius assumed wrongly that crestus or christ was in rome instigating these riots Or it just can mean that the followers of Christ were causing trouble within the Jewish community from the introduction of Christianity into one or more of the synagogues of the city. And so they were expelled from the city. But it took all of that to get Priscilla and Aquila out of Rome to Corinth where God brings Paul into contact with them. That's how God works sometimes. We don't always understand. We don't always know how it all comes about. But God does. Because you see, God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And if a God is that great, we can trust Him. We can trust Him with what we don't know right this minute. We can trust Him with what we don't know of that which is to come. We can trust Him because God is a good God. And so... It seems unfair that all of these people are banished from Rome and they're sent out of the the city. But the Lord used it to bring Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth to meet Paul. So what does Paul have? Fellowship with them. He's no longer alone. And... Another thing that we can learn from Paul, and this is that here's another instance of a Christian disciple, Paul as a Christian disciple, because he wasn't just an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was also a follower of Jesus Christ, so he was a disciple of Christ. And he took the words of Jesus seriously, that we who are disciples are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And so here's an instance where Paul as a Christian disciple finds and develops people into disciples. I want you to note again the word that I told you to mark in your Bible, found, he found them. Because wherever Paul went, he looked for people who needed Christ. Either they needed Christ or they needed to grow in Christ. Paul looked for them. And notice that it says he came to them. Paul wasn't afraid to come and to introduce himself and to say, Listen, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about what, you know, where hope lies in this world. I want to tell you about who came to take upon himself the sins of this world. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. And if they already knew Christ, then he'd say, okay, then let's, you know, let's grow in Christ. Let's grow in our understanding of God's Word. And that's an example to us all. That we need to be like Paul and people who will find people who need Jesus Christ. They're not always just going to come and appear on your doorstep. Sometimes they do, but that's an opportunity there. But is it that, you know, that's the exception, not the rule. The fact is we are called to go. Jesus said, go into all the world. Whatever part of the world that God has you in, that's your part of the world to go. And to be that kind of an example to others. Jesus said it best in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Well, Paul not only did that, but he encouraged Timothy, his disciple, to do the same thing. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the principle of discipleship. To tell people about Jesus, to encourage them to grow in Christ, to give them truth in the Word of God, and to encourage them to take that truth and to give it to others. How do you think the word got to us? It would have never reached us if people had the same attitude that sometimes people in the church have today. That it's somebody else's job to do that and we're just here to be recipients. No, we're here as members of the body of Christ to do exactly what Jesus called us to do, to be obedient in Him and to go and make disciples. See, this is not a suggestion in Matthew 28. He doesn't tell His disciples, well, if you want to go, go ahead. He says, go. And I think if Jesus says, go, that's a command. That's not a suggestion. So, let's awaken to what is a command and what are suggestions. I suggest that we listen to his commands. Okay, and do what he says. Another thing about this whole issue with Paul in Corinth is that it's important to know that there were many philosophers and itinerant preachers in Corinth And when I say itinerant preachers, I'm not talking about Christian preachers or even Jewish uh, itinerant preachers. I'm talking about the the fact that there were many religions in that time. There were certainly a lot of philosophies, but there were also many religions. And so in those religions there were people who would go out and preach a certain God or preach about a certain God that uh, did this or that and would do the same for them if they would just go ahead and provide some needed funds, you know. This is what uh, religious hucksters do today so, so uh, sad to say that sometimes in the name of christ but in paul's time there were still people who went about preying on the ignorant and superstitious population and remember we talked about superstition last week so when people are superstitious, if somebody tells them, well, you know, if you do this or you do that or you buy this or you buy that, you know, all these things will happen to you. There's still guys on TV today, I can't believe it. Twenty-first century, and they're still saying, Listen, if you if you write in, I'll send you this little vial of water from the Jordan River. I'm like thinking, I've been in the Jordan River. I wouldn't send anybody that water, you might make them sick. That's the dirtiest water I've ever seen. Or here's a little bit of dirt right around from where Jesus was crucified. How do you know? We we have an idea, but they don't even let you get there. So where's that dirt come from? Their backyard, or you know, I prayed over this this little handkerchief. It'll help you, you know. Well, you know, I know what handkerchiefs are for. Do you understand? That's hucksterism. Well, that's going on in Paul's time, and and, and Paul's message. Now understand that Paul's message and ministry could have easily been misunderstood if all of a sudden he is trying to draw from them funds for the preaching of the gospel. So one way of separating himself from the religious hucksters was by supporting himself as a tent maker. Now, Jewish rabbis of his time didn't accept money from their students, even though later on, I guess they did, or maybe they did still, but, you know, the the rule was that they, they didn't accept money from their students, but they earned their way by practicing a trade. All Jewish boys, in fact, were expected to learn a trade, no matter what profession they might enter. Paul became a tent maker; that was his trade. So, as a Jewish rabbi, if he had remained as a Jewish rabbi, you know, you know, he would have had his students, but then he would have gone and made tents for for his living. But we have to understand something: that Paul did recognize his right to be supported by those he ministered to, and he took that directly from the Old Testament. Read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 14. Here's a letter to the the Corinthians. And he says this to them. He says, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? Now if you remember going back, the, the Lord had, had told the, the children of Israel that they were to do everything to support those Levites and priests who worked in the temple. They were to take care of them. So they weren't to muzzle uh, an ox while it treads out the grain. So it, it was to fit into their understanding of taking care of those who took care of them spiritually. So he goes on and then he says this, For our sakes, no doubt. Uh, does he say it all together, for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right... But endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So he's speaking to the, the Corinthians who have already come to Christ through his ministry there. And remember that Paul was in Corinth a year and a half. Well, we'll see that next week. But he was in Corinth a year and a half. So at all that time, people are coming into the church, and he's having to write to them. To say the right is there for him to be supported. But it's not, he's not taking that right right now because he doesn't want to hinder the gospel. Why? Because of all of the other religious hucksters that he had to contend with anyway he goes on and he says do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel and yet he voluntarily supported himself on the mission field so that no one would accuse him of seeking converts for the sake of enriching himself so he goes on in verse 15 to say but I have used none of these things nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die that the, than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this willingly, I have a, if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel when we tell people about Jesus Christ we are offering a free gift we're not there to take anything from them we're there to give them everything they need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ we're there to give them the gospel though, so that they might come to Christ and know what it means to have salvation in Christ know what it means to have uh, the hope of eternal life to have the hope of everlasting life in Christ the, the, the price has already been paid Jesus' blood on the cross so please understand that so Paul has made a case both ways that those who preach the gospel and minister the, 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 the word of God are to be taken care of but at the same time when times call for it you got, you, got, you got to put the right aside so that it doesn't confuse you with all the others who, who are out there just for the money so as we go on in our text then With all of this in mind, we see then that Paul wasted no opportunity to witness boldly. There he is making his tents with Aquila and Priscilla. But every Sabbath, where was he? Every Sabbath he was at the synagogue. And notice verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Remember the word reasoned? We learned about it a few weeks ago. It was what Paul did in Thessalonica. He was reasoning with them in the scriptures, which means that he was disputing, he was arguing with them, not on his terms, but because they were arguing with him. So he had to reason with them. So that there's that understanding. Once again, in Corinth, with the Jews that are there, makes you wonder, the Jews are in Corinth with all of this idolatry and, and, and sexual immorality all around them while they're there. So, you know, there's Christians in Las Vegas, there's Christians in Hollywood, but it's all around them. Hopefully they're not involved with all this stuff. But nonetheless, here, he, here they are, and he's reasoning with them in the, uh, in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuading both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Those two verses are are somewhat uh, progressive in this sense. In verse 4, Paul is preaching. In verse 5, when Timothy and Silas finally come, he's preaching with more intensity. It's an intense uh, preaching that is mentioned in verse 5 and we'll talk about it in a moment. But as was Paul's practice, he shared Jesus in the synagogues to the Jews and the Greeks who were seeking the God of Israel first. And so when Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul, it appears that Paul now is energized and speaking with more boldness at, the point, at that point than, than before they arrived. There's that, that difference between four and five. And we might ask, well, what happened? Just because they arrived, he's energized just because they arrived. He's, he's excited about preaching the gospel even more. Well, let me read to you something that Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, had to say. Uh, and he wrote it from Corinth. He wrote it from there in Corinth. And so the Thessalonians received this. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. And remember, Paul uh, had left Timothy and Silas between Berea and Thessalonica. And the church is there to establish them, to strengthen them, to teach them. So he, now he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are comforted, or were comforted, concerning you by your faith. Comforted because he hears what good news Timothy and Silas had about them in Thessalonica. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith? Paul was encouraged and he was strengthened to hear about the faith of the Thessalonian church. What a blessing that was. I, I can tell you this, I have often been encouraged and strengthened by things that I hear that are happening in your lives and in your ministries. When when they're shared, when they're told, when, uh, you, know, when you come up and you say, you know, the, the, this happened at work or this happened at school and I shared the gospel and these people came to the Lord. I, I mean, it just encourages. It just lifts up. And you know, there are times in the ministry, you know, we're going to trudge it along and we're trusting the Lord, but you know, things can oftentimes be burdensome. But good news just refreshes. Good news just lifts up. And it's a great reminder that we truly need each other in the ministry. We need that encouragement from you. You need to hear encouragement from us when we can tell you what great things God has been doing in people's lives. And so, you know, Paul needed their support and they needed Paul's support. And Paul is writing them to encourage them. I'm excited about what they're telling me about you. And it's lifting him up. But when we read in verse 5 of our text that Paul was compelled by the Spirit, this is, this is where the intensity level of his preaching goes sky high because of what, because of what he hears in Thessalonica. Because that word compelled there uh, in verse 5 literally means that he was totally absorbed with single-minded fervor. First of all, that, was, that would have been very hard for him to be uh, that way if he had been alone still. In Corinth, but because he had friends now that were that were believers, and he had the people that were baptized in the church in Corinth, as little as it may have been, and then he hears about the news of Thessalonica, where where, where Paul had had some trouble with Jews there, uh, you know, complaining about his ministry and whatnot. He's he's just energized. I mean, he's just filled with with a desire to be totally absorbed in preaching the gospel. So now, reading what we've read before in First Corinthians two, verse two. When he says, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that was the single-mindedness, you see. And then in 1 Corinthians 9.16, when he says at the end of that verse, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, he realized the importance of that intensity in his preaching. Because now he, he realizes, and, and, and that's not that he realizes so much then, but just is encouraged to remember how great God is when we preach the gospel in truth. Well, what happens when all of this is going on? Well, whenever God is, is blessing and prospering a ministry, you can be sure that along with increased opportunities, as Paul had, will come increased opposition. And opposition was something that wasn't, it wasn't new to Paul. Paul had faced it before. But notice verse 6 now of our text, because it says, but when they opposed him and blasphemed. Please understand, they're not blaspheming Paul. So when they opposed him and blasphemed, because he preached Jesus Christ, there's an indirect reference to the fact that there is deity in in Christ, because they're not blaspheming Paul, they're blaspheming Jesus. And Jesus, being the Son of God, is also God, the Son. And it says, when they opposed him and blasphemed, <clears throat> he shook his garments and he said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now the Jews opposed the message of Paul, that Jesus is the Messiah, and thus they weren't blaspheming Paul, but God by their rejection of Christ. And I want you to notice something, that that Paul didn't continue to force the issue. Paul didn't force the issue. They, they, They didn't want to receive it. They wanted to reject it. They didn't want to hear of Jesus anymore. So he leaves the synagogue. He leaves the synagogue. Because when people have made up their mind, there is no use continuing on. There are times even in Scripture that the Lord says, don't pray for them anymore that's a heavy duty thought but that's what god says there are times when we have to even stop praying for some people god already knows what's happened god knows the heart that's that's heavy but paul you know it's it's not to say that these people won't come back it's not to say that a door hasn't left been left open I'll talk about it in just a moment. But but understand, when people have made up their mind, there's no sense in continuing on. What Paul did here was fulfill the spirit of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 6, when he said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. And of course, the door may open again. I, I know that in this room today, there are testimony after testimony of people who have rejected the gospel. Some of you rejected Jesus time and time again. I know. I did it myself. If You can reject him time and time again. And some people, you know, at, at some point in time, they just say, well, you know what? We're going to be praying for you. Do whatever floats your boat. But at some point, God has His way. And at some point, some people have gone back to those, those that they had mocked and, and blasphemed and as far as blaspheming Christ, and they would say, You know what? Tell me again about Jesus. So the door is always open. Please understand that. There's not complete rejection in Paul, but we have to always be ready we could spend so much time on one person and they get worse and worse and worse and hard and hard and hard we're missing other people you see it's time to move on it's important to understand a significant principle and responsibility first of all our responsibility ours as Christians is to share the good news of Jesus Christ secondly it is then up to the individuals that we preach to to receive it it's up to them to receive it it's not up to you it's up to them Paul sees the door closed to the Jews at this point. So he moves on to the Gentiles to share with them the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. But I want you to think about something here. Don't ever discount what Paul has written to the Romans from Corinth. Especially Romans 11 verse 11. Because there he says, I say then, have they stumbled, speaking of the Jews, have they stumbled that they should fall? And he says, certainly not. God forbid. But through their fall." To provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. He knew exactly what he was saying because he was experiencing it personally in Corinth. They rejected him. uh, uh, I should say they rejected him personally, and and rejected Jesus in Paul's ministry personally. But notice what he goes on to say. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So where does he go? What does the text say? Uh, my hands are clean. In effect, that's what he meant. But he says, my hands are clean, and now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He preaches to the, to the Jews. They reject. And he says, now I go to the Gentiles. Why? Because if the Gentiles come to Christ, they will be provoked to jealousy. And they will then come to Jesus. So, What did Paul do? He shook his garments so that not a speck of dust from the synagogue remained on his clothes much less his sandals. It was a dramatic way of expressing his rejection of their rejection. You reject me? Well here, I reject you. And then he says to them, well, you had your opportunity but now it's over for for now. It's over for now. You had your opportunity. Well, that kind of opposition is usually proof that the Lord is at work. And this ought to encourage us, not discourage us. You see, if we get rejected in the preaching of the gospel, realize this. That it's, in a sense, we get blessed because of it. Because we're just being obedient to what Christ has called us to do. Besides, it's the Lord's work to save people, not ours. We're just the vessels to bring the message. We have the responsibility of sharing. They have to receive it. It's God's work, the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts, just as it was in your life when you came to Christ. Charles Spurgeon used to say uh, that the devil never kicks a dead horse. The devil never kicks a dead horse. That means that if you're alive and serving the Lord, he's not going you know, to kick a dead horse, he's going to kick you because you're alive. As long as you keep preaching the gospel, and even though you may be rejected at times, you know, the devil's going to kick at you. That's what the opposition is. But just just give thanks to God. Just thank the Lord. Paul uses a couple of uh, Hebrew idioms here or uh, ideas or metaphors that they would have understood. It says that Paul told them, the blood is on your heads, but I am clean. When he says I am clean, he's talking about the blood on his own hands. Let me explain. Blood on your hands meant that you bore the responsibility for another's death because you weren't faithful to warn them. To have blood on your head meant that you are you were to blame for your own judgment. You had the opportunity to be saved, but you turned it down. Paul's hands were clean when he says, "My," he says, "When I'm clean," he says, "I am clean. It's my hands that are clean." Because he was faithful to declare the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told them what they needed. He had done his part as a watchman with respect to warning the Jews. But he tells them the blood is on your heads. Because it is on their heads that they are to receive the blame for their own judgment. They are not to blame anyone else but themselves. This comes from this idea in in, in Ezekiel chapter 3 of the watchman. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you shall deliver, you shall but you have delivered your soul. You'll be clean. Your hands are clean, but the blood is on his head. Because he's to blame for his own judgment. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, the blood will not be on his head. Also, you will have delivered your soul, because the blood is not on your hands. Paul tells them, the blood is on your heads, because you have rejected Jesus Christ. I'm clean. They understood what he was saying. I'm clean, because as a watchman, I've warned you. Now that issue of a righteous person sinning, that's for another time. But let me just say this. Week in and week out, we teach the Word of God. Week in and week out, we teach what it says in the Old and New Testaments. We teach what the Bible is saying to us today. Yes, there are times when we say, don't do this, don't do that, because these things do not honor God. These things do not bring glory and praise to God. But we want to do more in encouraging you to do the things that do honor God. The things that the the scripture says. To trust the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. To live, to give help to others. To to give those in need. To help those that are hurting. There are a lot more good things to do than than the bad things to keep away from. But nonetheless, if we've told you, don't go down this route because it's going to take you down. If we've told you, our hands are clean. But if you persist in going down a route that does not honor God we've told you please come back to Jesus please come back to the Lord please understand how much God loves you and wants you back with him but be careful if you, you stray away we all know people who strayed so far away from the Lord where are they today? where are they today? and we heard over these things We trust that they'll come back to the Lord. But if we've warned you, our hands are clean. Paul learned a lesson on this leg of the journey. Just as we all should. it was the promise that was given to him by Jesus the great commission that we read earlier I leave you with these last words of verse 20 of Matthew 28 he said and lo I'm with you always even to the end of the age I'm with you Paul was alone in Athens and in Corinth but he wasn't alone the Lord was with him The Lord blessed him. The Lord lifted him up. The Lord provided friends and brothers in Christ. The Lord provided ministry. The Lord provided a church that he could establish, that he could take some people and baptize them and have that kind of great fellowship with them in the love of the Lord. And eventually in Corinth, they would have a blessing To share together, it would be in the table of communion. And as we'll see in just a moment from Corinth, Paul talks about that table of communion to them that they shared. So, what has God provided for you to remind you of His great love for you? And that you're not alone. Even when you think you're alone, bask in that presence of Christ. Bask in that glory of His presence. Because He loves you, He cares for you. Let's pray.